And, uh, he has no rivals, no equals. And when his people sing that, every angel in heaven, every saint who has died before us is around the throne saying, yes, yes. And he, the Lord Jesus himself, accepts it about himself. He's the only one that can be sung about. So turn to chapter 41. We're about to get down to business. We're going to see that exact thing in this text this morning. <clears throat> Let me take you back just a couple days ago, if I could, to my home at midnight. I'm about to go to bed. Jenna and Joel are in bed and it's dark and I walk in my kitchen and walk around the corner of the cabinet. And with my left foot, I feel like I step on some kind of tube. And the second I stepped on that and I felt it under my foot, the weight is on it. I feel searing pain strike into my ankle. As I try to lift my foot off, I see something fly in front of me and I hear this noise. And I went, ah, Moses. I had stepped on the tail of our cat. And he had turned and stuck his claws into my ankle. And he hollered and jumped. And I hollered and jumped. Jen and Joel come out of the bedroom. <laughs> What's wrong? I said, I stepped on Jingle's tail. They were like. <clears throat> I didn't make you have problems going to sleep. I say that because fear can make us crazy. Here's what we know about fear. We all feel a lot of it. Amen? If you don't, you're not aware. You need to become more aware. Okay? That's free. And we know it can literally paralyze us and make us turn to those empty, broken cisterns that Phil talked a few weeks ago about to try to find life from. Or it can make us turn to the Lord and scream for help. I have found myself in some of my most fearful times weeping to the Lord and all I could get out was help the boy. <laughs> help me Lord. The fear of the Lord though is the beginning of wisdom and wisdom is asking for help. Fear can be a great friend or a great foe. Fear offers us the opportunity to trust God and others with our need for help or it entices us to stay stuck in distrust and self-will. Ultimately, to trust God or to trust ourselves. And so here in the context of Isaiah 41, God's people Israel are in the Babylonian captivity. And there's nothing that brings fear to a person's heart more than being in captivity in a foreign land with chains on. Would you agree with that? Isaiah knows God's people will need strong promises and a sure foundation in order to trust him in the worst of times. And this is the worst of times. So here's what God does. God gives us the contrast and compare passage. And what I mean by that is he gives us a contrast between the God of the universe, the living God, and the pagan gods. And then 
He says, in light of who I am and who you see me here, know that I care for you. I am there for you. My grace is sufficient for you. It is this grace to Israel and to us that John Neuter, the writer of the hymn Amazing Grace, wrote about. He says, "'Twas grace that, was, that taught my heart to fear. Yes, and grace my fears relieved. Grace is the antidote. It teaches us to fear God, which is the beginning of wisdom, and it relieves my fears and makes me trust God. When God in his grace to us is bigger and better than our fears, we'll turn to him, we'll trust him, and we'll rejoice in him as we'll see at the end of this passage. So the first thing God does here, God makes his case to the nations. Let's read verses 1 through 4 together. God says, listen to me in silence, O coastlands. Let the people renew their strength. Let them, let them approach. Then let them speak. Let us together draw near for judgment. Who stirred up one from the east, whom victory meets at every step? He gives up nations before him so that he tramples kings underfoot. He makes them like the dust with his sword, like driven stubble with his bow. He pursues them, <coughs> excuse me, he pursues them and passes on safely by paths his feet have not trod. Who has performed and done this? Calling the generations from the beginning? Answer, I the Lord, the first and the last I am he. So here's the picture, if you could, of a courtroom and God the judge is speaking. And what he's doing here, when you see the word O coastlands, that's a synonym for all the nations, all the heathen Gentile nations. He is inviting them into his presence and Israel's watching and God says, come into my presence, all the nation, Gentile nations of the world and listen to me. Now you can imagine if you've been in a courtroom, which I have a few times because of my speeding tickets, uh, that's not a place where you do a lot of chit-chatting. Matter of fact, I've been in courtrooms where the judge has told people to do what? Shut your mouth or you will be removed. That's what God says here. There's a weightedness here. There's a dignity here. There's a heaviness here. The God of the universe is speaking. He says, come, listen to me and shut your mouth. The creature is summoned to come into the presence of the Holy Creator. And then in the next phrase it says, let the peoples renew their strength. The idea here is an invitation for the people to exchange their strength. To exchange their strength from what they usually trust in, their own idols, we're going to see in a minute, to exchange it for trust in the God of the universe. It's a, it's a gracious, long arm, extension, and inclusion offer from the God of the universe to heathen pagan nations to say, come and let me be your God and I will give you real strength. It will replace the false strength that you have had. Man, is that good? Monty spoke of last week in that classic passage, Isaiah 40. Those who wait on the Lord will renew their... That's the offer. 
That's what he's offering to these heathen nations. <clears throat> then he says at the end of verse 1, then they can speak and will come to judgment. What he's saying there is, then you can speak and we'll come to a decision. It's not judgment as in judging them, but we'll come to a decision. God is saying, acknowledge me as your God and respond appropriately or go your own way. He will leave the option open to them. And even here, even here as he speaks to all the nations, we see God's willful purpose that he would include a multi-ethnic, every race tongue and tribe of people in the world in his community. That's why racism is so stupid. Here it is from the God of the universe even in the Old Testament. So this is a gracious offer of inclusion. But something has to be settled first. And there's some misconceptions of God and that's got to be cleared up. So he asked the question and the question is not what. The question is what? Who? As the people of God are in chains in Babylon, they are asking some very reasonable questions, but they're also asking questions that have been asked literally since the beginning of humanity. And we ask those today when we are struggling, when times are hard. And here are the questions. They're universal. People have been asking them since the beginning of the world. Does God love us? Does he care? Is he good? Is God powerful? And if, if he is, why are we living in chains? And you and I aren't living in physical chains, but many of us are living and have lived, including myself, in the chains of our own sin. Verses 2 and 3 says, who stirred up one from the east whom victory meets at every step? Everywhere he goes, he conquers. Who initiated this anonymous conqueror's career? There's a warrior here. There's a conqueror who's cleaning house. Everywhere he goes, he's dominating and destroying whoever he fights. Who is the master of this conqueror? Who determined what he shall do? Now here's what we know in Isaiah 44 through 47, we're going to find out that this conqueror, this anonymous conqueror here is named Cyprus the Great, the founder of the Persian Empire. He is the one from the east that Isaiah speaks of. But Isaiah here's concern is not with uh, <clears throat> who Cyprus is. His concern to the readers and to us at this point is that God is the ruler over every authority. He's the ruler over earth. He's the God of all of history. The empires rise and literally fall at the direction of this living God and God is accomplishing his sovereign will in the universe because he is the one, he is the one that rise Cyrus up and let him do what he did. Verse four says, who has performed and done this. In a hundred or so years, here's what we know from history, Cyrus will go and overtake Babylon in 539 BC. He'll liberate the Jews. He'll let them go back home. 
So this prophetic statement by Isaiah is not about Cyrus's world domination, but about us and the Jews seeing God at work. <laughs> Isaiah is saying, look, I'm going to give you a prophetic statement that's going to happen, just like I said it's going to happen. And when you see it's happening, you'll know that God is at work. He said it, I told you, it happened. And it happened just as Isaiah said it. The Lord did it. He says, the Lord is the first to arrive. We think of Genesis 1. And the last to what? Leave. Revelation 21. But here's what we know. God was there before Genesis 1. And he'll be there after Genesis 21. That's who he is. One writer put it this way. Through human history, the raising up of potentates and powers to do the divine will of the true and living God. This is our God. I am he is the answer to the question of who. So God makes this great case to the nations. This is who I am. I'm the ruler of the world. I have divine sovereign power over every ruler. I'm the one that's going to rise Cyrus up. That's who I am. I am he. So, next question, logical. The nations respond, or how do the nations respond? And they respond with self-protective human fear. Let me read verses 5 through 7. Very interesting here says, the coastlands have seen. What have they seen? They've seen the evidence that this God is the ruler of the universe. He causes all things. They've seen who he is and they are afraid. The ends of the earth tremble. They have drawn near and come. Everyone helps his neighbor and says to his brother, be strong. The craftsman strengthened the goldsmith, and he who smoothed with the hammer him who strikes the anvil, saying of the solderer, it is good, and they strengthen it with nails so that it cannot be moved. You think, you think just for a second maybe, that after all the evidence has been seen of who God is and his gracious long arm offer of grace to these people that they would respond with hearts of thanksgiving and gratitude and submission. But if you really think, you would say, no, because I know myself. God has given me this long arm of grace and I have, all, I have not always responded with hearts of gratitude and thanksgiving. You think, though, that maybe the, they would say this God of Israel will become our God. It's interesting here, and this is the point for us to remember, and that is that unbelievers are rarely argued by evidence and to the kingdom of God. Now, I love apologetics. We did an eight-week series of apologetics. We tried to send all y'all to the movie The Case for Christ and get everybody in Murfreesboro a book called The Case for Christ. And the 16 reasons of how you know Jesus rose from the dead, they're great. But most of us come to Christ at a young age and grow slowly, much like my wife, or we find ourselves in this moral crisis where we are sick and tired of our life. And at the end, we turn and say, help me, Lord. Even Lee Strobel himself 
who came to faith through his research of the resurrection. He had a moral crisis and that was he was going to lose his wife. His wife had come to Christ and that was driving him toward the evidence. So apologetics is good, but the truth of the matter of the scripture teaches that the spirit of God takes scales off our eyes and allows us to see truth. And then the 16 facts of why Jesus rose from the dead helps to cement our faith. That's normal. So these nations, what do they do? They feel fear and they tremble. You would think, I would think, well, they're going to, a lot of times in the Bible we see people fear and trembling, they turn and repent and worship. Here though, this fear and trembling does not lead to repentance and worship. It leads to them to come together to find strength within themselves. Uh-oh. They don't come to God. They turn to each other and say, be strong. Are you afraid? Yeah, be strong with nothing to undergird it. It's like saying to the person who's struggling with sin and they come to you and you say, stop it. <laughs> Doesn't work. There's nothing to undergird it with. And in verse 7, it shows us what they try to include to undergird this be strong within themselves. It's their own idols. They run to their idols. Men and women have been confronted in this text with the truth about God, given evidence about him that he is the ruler of the universe. He's sovereign over all. And they respond with, let's get together and make a community idol. So they get started. Verse 7 tells us. They crank the fire up. They melt some metal. They get the hammer out. They drive in the nails to make sure it doesn't fall over. Their branding for their product, the idol, is weebles wobble, but they don't fall down, right? And then the craftsman actually says, and it is good. And Isaiah, if you know your Bible and you're tuned to that, Isaiah would think and we would think, we go back to Genesis 1 when the creator of the universe created all that we see and experience and afterwards he said it is what? Good. And here is the, create, the creation creating a metallic and wood idol and saying it is good. Oh folks, how far have we come from the truth? <clears throat> the idols like always, are the defensive, self-protective product of the event of fear. People felt fear and they need a way to manage life. Life is hard and fearful and people need a defense mechanism to protect them from that fear. Because to acknowledge God means to submit to him. But instead of surrendering to him, they say, yikes, let's make a God which is running to those empty poopy cisterns again. <clears throat> One writer said, the God of all comfort wants to make us uncomfortable so we would abandon our idols and find our comfort in him. Amen. G.K. Chesterton said, when people stop believing in God, they don't believe in nothing. They believe in anything. 
And here's what happens. These people join together to construct their own meaning, their own myths, and ultimately their own gods with a little g. So God has made his case a gracious offer and invitation to the Gentile world. And the Gentile world responded with what? Let's make an idol. And then God turns his attention to his own people. And he says in point three, but you, Israel, my servant. Here's what I want you to do this morning. I want you to mark out the word Israel and I want you to write your name. John, Sally, Susie, Jehoshaphat. I thought about naming one of my kids Jehoshaphat when we were running out of J names. Jenna was against it. Put your name in there, very personal. But you, John, my servant. So here's what Isaiah does. The first thing he does is point us to the God who is with us in this crazy world we live in. And the word but here is very important. It shows the contrast between those who tremble as they prop themselves up with helpless and homemade saviors and the people of God, the contrast, people with the people of God who know exactly what to expect from the Holy One of Israel. Let's read verses 8 through 13 together. <clears throat> but you, Israel, my servant, Jacob, with whom I have chosen, the offspring of Abraham, my friend, you whom I took from the ends of the earth and called from its father's corner, saying to you, you are my servant. I have chosen you and not cast you off. Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Behold, and that's verse 10. You can put that one to memory, folks. One of the classic texts in all the Bible. John Piper's favorite verse. Behold, all who are incensed against you shall be put to shame and confounded. Those who strive against you shall be as nothing and shall perish. You shall seek those who contend with you, but you won't find them. Those who war against you shall be as nothing at all. For I, the Lord your God, hold you, hold your right hand. It is I who say to you, fear not. I am the one who helps you. Man, if that doesn't preach, nothing will. The first thing Isaiah reminds them of is when you are fearful, not if. Because of human hostility, remember I will uphold you. In verse 8, he uses this term servant on two occasions. The idea here is different than what we think about as servant or western slavery. It means the child of the Holy One of Israel. It's like this. If you mess with one of my kids, you're messing with me. God says you mess with one of my children, you're going to have to mess with the living God. It is one, the servant is one who is owned by the Lord, bought by the Lord, protected by the Lord, provided for by the Lord. And so the question is, how does one receive this servant status? And here's what Isaiah tells us. 
divine choice. God chose you. The sovereign God of the universe chose us and upholds us with his righteous right hand. This word chosen, another theological word we use here is the word election. And I'm not here to mourn this morning and neither is Isaiah to argue with you intellectually about whether you believe in election or free will. When election is used here, and often in scripture, it's not meant for a discussion. It is meant to be one of the greatest source of comforts for the people of God. God is reminding us that his love for us is not contingent upon our performance. His love for us is not contingent upon our faithfulness. His love for us is not contingent upon our struggles. It is not contingent upon our failures or our obedience. But it is contingent upon his divine choice to choose us in spite of us. The audience he's speaking to here are Jews in captivity who Charles Barkley would say if he were here today have absolutely sinned in a terrible way. Right? Who has been more sinful than the people of God that we've been reading about in the first 39 chapters of Isaiah? They are in Babylon because of their sin. And God says, I chose you. God's grace to us, God's love for us does not hang in the balance of how good you were today or yesterday or last week or last month. I want to tell you, if I can be as transparent, I have thought in my head, Lord, a thousand times, Lord, I, I, I know I say I followed you, but what in the world is wrong with me? Why do I do the things I do? Why do I think the things I do? Why do I say the things I do? Here's the bottom line. Me and you, we never ever pull our weight with God. And yet, that is why he is so glorious. He chooses us. And this melts our heart and makes me want to trust him. I'm reminded of... Uh, her story I heard recently by Dr. Russell Moore. I mean, you know Dr. Moore. He was saying this guy came to hear him and said, Dr. Moore, I feel like I'm just struggling. I feel like I'm going to go to hell. I'm just struggling with sin and temptation. And, and I just, I'm doing terrible. Dr. Moore said, well, welcome to reality. Me too. And the guy said, well, you don't understand. You don't understand. Like, I feel like I could just hang it up and be an apostate and walk away from the faith Every day, it seems like, Dr. Moore said, me too. He said, no, you don't understand. If I found out today that the bones of Jesus were in the Mideast in a desert buried somewhere, meaning he didn't raise from the dead, I'd just go out and get drunk, do drugs and go crazy. Dr. Moore said, me too is what Paul told us to do, right? If he didn't raise from the dead, he said, drink Mary for tomorrow you die. Listen to these words. Straight from this text. I took you, called you when you were far away. Shoo. Chose you, 
I will not cast you off. No strings attached. There's no unless there. I am with you. Do not be fearful. I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you. And when you live for me in a perverse generation and you take fire for it, I'm going to deal with them. Or I'm going to bring them to Christ. One way or the other. Secondly, Isaiah says, when you are fearful because of personal weakness, remember I will change you. Look at verses 14 through 16. This is so fun here. Fear not, you worm Jacob. <laughs> is that great? You're a worm. You men and women of Israel. I am the one who helps you, declares the Lord. Your Redeemer is the Holy One of Israel. Behold, I make you a threshing sledge, new, sharp, and having teeth. You shall thresh the mountains and crush them, and you shall make the hills like chaff. You shall winnow them, and the wind shall carry them away, and the tempest shall scatter them, and you shall rejoice in the Lord and the Holy One of Israel's Real, you shall glory. I know from experience that my own weakness and struggle with sin can make me afraid. One writer said, we found our enemy and it is us. You feel that? We don't need outside enemies with the things we say to ourselves and about ourselves. Whatever barrier, this is what he's saying, whatever barrier we have to life change, it's never a barrier that is too big for God's power to transform us. That's the big idea of verses 14 through 16. Verse 14, we got to ask the question, why does God call us a worm? It's not a great way to instill courage, is it? I thought about Gideon, uh, my first sermon ever preached. I was in college. I from Gideon chapter 6. I'd heard Paul Cox speak on it and I came back and preached it word for word just like he said it. And, uh, but I remember, look, I remember it even though it was plagiarizing. Um, <laughs> called out to Gideon, God did, O faithful warrior, O man of valor. You know that's sarcasm. Gideon was a skinny, scrawny 16-year-old hiding out in the wine press. He says here, do not fear, you worm. A worm, think about it with me. It is hopelessly inadequate to the task. It's the lowliest of all creatures. It is helpless to defend itself. Here's the life of a worm. It is born, it lives, it eats, it gets eaten. I killed a turkey this year, had about 50 worms in it, right? Just lays around and turkeys come by and eat it. It poops and it dies. And it fertilizes the ground. 
This phrase is used to point out how really weak we are within ourselves. It's why we don't turn to ourselves to find strength. It's why we don't trust our own hearts and minds. It reminds us of our frailty, that we're not sufficient for genuine life change from the inside out. Write this word, word, two words in your notes, worm theology. I couldn't find it in Grudem's systematic theology, so, but I think it needs to be there. I wanted to put it on the outline, couldn't figure out how to put it. Worm theology is great biblical theology. It is the opposite of self-sufficiency and self-exaltation. I recently saw a guy I know on social media a Christian who wrote, we are all born good, with good hearts. And I made a case, a biblical case. I was nice, I was respectful, but I went through total depravity several times throughout the post and literally got ripped apart by a Christian community for the most part. Saved like a wretch, saved a wretch like me is worm theology. The fear of my own self and the propensity I have to sin is what keeps me close and I find help from the God that bled for me. God says this, this is what he says, here's the point. I'm going to take these worms who only can move a one-by-one-inch piece of dirt and turn them into a threshing sledge. That's the transformation from worm to threshing sledge. What's a threshing sledge? It's this, this, this image is so funny, but yet so powerful. It's a huge, huge pieces of wood roped together with sharp teeth and metal pointing out of it that's put behind the animal and drug across the ground to tear the ground to shreds. Imagine the largest plow behind a tractor that you've ever seen. And if you've ever watched a great plow run across hard rock sword, it just shreds it. God says, I'm going to transfer you from a worm to a threshing sledge. Now that's transformation, is it not? And when God changes us from a worm to his threshing plow, he uses us to bring down mountains, the text tells us, in our own life and in the life of others. Because in the scriptures, mountains always are presented as a barrier to change, a barrier to accomplish the Lord's purpose. It is why the scripture teaches when Jesus comes back, when the Messiah returns, the mountains will be leveled and the valleys will be raised up. There will be a leveling of all the earth. Because of the glorification and change that he brings. From worms that aerate an inch of dirt undetected to a threshing sledge that levels the rocky mountains. And when that takes place, when God saves us and radically changes us. Here's what happens. Only he gets the credit. The power to go from a th worm to a threshing sledge, only he has it. I thought about how God always uses extreme, extreme terms to describe his work in our lives. Terms like 
dead to alive, enemies to friends, slave to free, orphan to adopted son or daughter, dark to light. God chooses the weak and sinful worms of this world to confuse the wise so that we and they will boast in the Lord alone. Here's Paul's words in 1 Corinthians 1, 26 through 28. Remember, dear brothers and sisters, that few of you were wise in the world's eyes or powerful or wealthy. Remember, you were worms. <laughs> When God called you. Instead, God chose things the world considers foolish in order to shame those who think they are wise. And he chose things that are powerless to shame those who are powerful. God chose things despised by the world, things counted as nothing at all, and used them to bring to nothing what the world considers important. As a result, no one can ever boast in the presence of God. And then lastly, Isaiah says, when you are fearful because of adverse circumstances, not lastly, secondly, remember I, or lastly, yeah, will refresh you. Huh, thought we were done. <clears throat> I won't read those verses because of time, but let me, uh, let me unpack a little bit here. In these verses, you can read them on your own, you will find, you will find two words, the poor and the needy. The poor are those who are crushed under the weight of living in this sinful world. The needy here are helpless before the challenge of life's adversities. When you and I find ourselves helpless, or needy and poor. This picture that he paints is a person who's in the desert. And when a person is in the desert, the two things they need most are shade and water. And God paints himself here as a picture of refreshment. When thirsty people seek water in prayer, God answers with himself. Oh, Lord, help me. When thirsty people seek water in the scriptures, God answers with himself. Try him. When thirsty people seek water through the mouth of a brother and sister in Christ, the Lord answers with himself. We many times can play the victim because of our own sinfulness. I'm the only one that struggles. Woe is me. My sin's worse than everybody else's. I'm stuck in my sin. I'll never change. It's a lie from the freaking pit of hell, y'all. Don't be arrogant. It's arrogant to say I can't believe I'm struggling with sin. <laughs> You're human. And here's the deal that I'm learning. The fountain of refreshment lives in me. <laughs> the Lord Jesus. You're not stuck in your sin. You can change. 
I'm thankful to have some men in my life over the years that looked me in the eye at some of my darkest moments and said, get up. Go to the Lord. <laughs> you can change. I think of Paul's words. I'll end with this in 1 Corinthians 10, 13. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability but with the temptation he will also provide a way of escape. You'll be tempted. Your temptation is normal, common to all men and women around the world for the history of the world and guess what? God will provide a way of escape and if you sin it's on you. He is there, but you, my servant Israel, I will help you, I will uphold you, I will strengthen you, I will be with you, I am your God, do not fear, come to me, I will refresh you, I will renew you. He says it to us over and over. Try him. He is the sovereign ruler of the universe. He is good for his word. Take a minute this morning to ask the question, so what? Where are you this morning? When I am, a, when I am fearful and whom do I turn to? Where do you run? Have you tried the Lord? What does it look like? When's the last time you just cry before the Lord, help the boy, help the girl? Those who wait on the Lord, those who go to the Lord, will renew their strength. Take a minute to ask those questions.